Hi, everyone. Welcome to Inclusive Collective. I'm your co-host, Rob Hadley, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Nadia Butt. Nadia, how are you? What's up, Rob? What's the what's the dilly, yo? <laughs> that, is, that is dating yourself. Whenever someone asks what the dealio is, I know that they are not, it's certainly not Gen Z. Yeah, for sure. Wait, do you remember the WhatsApp, uh, the WhatsApp commercials, the WhatsApp? Remember those guys? It was like a Super Bowl commercial back in like the early 90s, maybe, or late 90s. Yes, I don't, totally again, it was another myself. thing I don't admit to. I don't admit to that. So I now yeah, I want to get into so today, how about we let's let's dive into the world of politics. What do you say? Let's talk about Ooh, the government. I love it. No, I'm kidding. I, let's not do let's that. Let's talk about who we hate. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. Let's talk let's but our guest today yes. does have some link to the to the political world, right? We Absolutely. we're going into we're going into uh we we talked a little bit about grant funding with previous guests. And so now we're gonna talk a little bit about another form of alternative funding. And that is uh, through government programs as well, right? Absolutely. So I am personally excited to welcome our next guest. Um, Abid Siddiqui has an extensive background in the startup and entrepreneurial world. Um, he has done operations and finance and design where he's worked at uh, startup companies, one called Bike Cubed, later acquired by IntelliBridge, and then ZapRx, which um, ended up being acquired by Allscripts. Currently, Abid serves as a strategic advisor to the innovation division at the Biomedical Research and Developmental Authority, which is also known as BARDA, which is part of the U.S. federal government's uh, pandemic and emer uh, emergency response team. So there, Abid advises on how organizations build and fund early stage biotech and digital health companies that really will shape the future of healthcare delivery and um, emergency response. Welcome, Avid. Um, we are delighted to have you here with us this uh, today. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's great to be here. And excited to uh, jump into stuff. Very cool. Awesome, Avid. It's great to meet you. Um, you have a very broad background for the topic that we're discussing here today, right? So you've been with teams that have exited and startups. Uh, you serve as a mentor and a judge uh, at Mass Challenge. And I just wondered about your, you know, just wanted to invite you to talk about your current role and how that is either similar or dissimilar to some of the experiences that you've had in the past. And uh, you know, in what ways has it surprised you? Yeah, I hear the first thing as an uh, advisor to HHS, and I have to throw out this disclaimers. Sure. Of course. The <laughs> thoughts and opinions that I present today are mine and mine only, not the federal government's. Sure. Uh, so just throw it out there. And let's so Biden's out, not supporting but... this, people. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say that he has approved my, my talking <laughs> points for today, but thanks, Rob, for the question. Um, I think that the role that I'm in now with the HHS uh, and BARDA specifically, um, it's much more around taking the experiences that I've had in the previous couple of startups that I worked at um, and leveraging it for the federal government and for different, what they call mission critical areas. And so with BARDA and biomedical uh, research with COVID and the pandemic hitting, um, there's a huge focus on you know, medical devices, diagnostics, testing to get it out to the market faster, more accurate, and quite honestly, to do it at scale and be inclusive of a number of different types of population, whether that's, you know, race, uh, geographic, you know, there's all sorts of different complexities with that. Um, and so in my role, we are essentially working with the startup community to try to address those different gaps 
in the care delivery for the HHS. I, I wouldn't say we're at the end of the pandemic. I mean, I don't know when it's going to end in theory, but you know, we've at least got, gone through some ups and downs in terms of peaks and valleys um, in terms of cases. And we've had lessons learned over the past two to three years with the pandemic. Um, and so we're taking those lessons learned specifically around the bumps and bruises around, for example, uh, getting vaccines out in a, um, with the efficient, way. efficient, in an inclusive manner. And also uh, some gross assumptions that we made. Again, I'm not speaking on, on behalf of the federal government, just in general, uh, general talk, like from healthcare perspective, you know, the pandemic exposed a lot of inequities in terms of assumptions that, like predispositions in terms of how folks access healthcare. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, those are some lessons learned that we've come around across, you know, the past couple of years that we're now trying to go back and, you know, prepare for future. Hopefully there's no bio threats and hazards, but, you know, of course there will be, um, something that pops up in the future, whether it's a pandemic or some, some unknown threat. And so how are we going to respond and how can we leverage the innovation that's happening within the startup ecosystem to help address that? So, you know, that's a lot. There's a lot of subtopics there, but for the most part, that's essentially what I'm doing now. And obviously it's very different than being in a startup where you're razor sharp and you're focused on, you know, a certain customer segment, building a product, getting that customer delight or user satisfaction up high uh, to create, create essentially either some sort of traction with your users, revenue, et cetera. So it's a little bit different mindset, but certainly the problems are sim similar um, because you know, you're trying to impact on both ends, whether you're in a startup or you're in an accelerator incubator, you're taking a group of companies and trying to help scale and grow them in different ways. Um, so the mindset is similar, but it's just a little bit different on the execution. Mm. Abed, I, well, so fun fact for you, Rob, <laughs> um, it, this is actually a big treat for me because Abed and I have known each other, I think maybe since we were like eight years old or something crazy, we went to Sunday school together, yeah. right? Um, a huge shout out to Quincy Mosque. And yeah, right. um, when you think of your background, your identity, your experience, um, your education, kind of how has how has any of that played a part in the work that you do that you did and do now? What kind of observations have you made? And does that any any of that play a role in what you're seeing? You know, I, I don't think I was that aware or mindful of the DEI topic until this, the most recent role that I've been in. I think leading up to that point, it was more personal just because of being, you know, first generation in the country and, and trying to carve a path out for myself. So I think there's a little bit of, of more of a chip on your shoulder to try to make sure that, you know, you succeed in whatever you're doing, whether it's work or socially or whatever it is, sure. but that you have this like push to always succeed. Yeah. So, you know, there, there's the personal aspect of it, just kind of growing up in uh, being a minority in, in the U.S. And, you know, you have a, you have different, different challenges, I would say, uh, than like, say, if you're, you're coming from a traditional background, um, it's just that you're, you know, you're always uh, trying to figure out how you fit in into certain environments and whether that's, you know, religious, racially, you know, socioeconomic status, things like that. You're always kind of trying to pivot and trying to figure out how you align, how you fit in. Do you fit in? Um, and I think there's, and it's like a certain age that, that you go through. I mean, I, I, I imagine all folks have that insecurity in the high school, college years, trying to fit in always. And there's some point where you start to, you click and you really grasp, believe in your identity and you start to drive that as like, I'm really excited for, you know, about my background mm -hmm. and where I've come from and the things that I've had to, to work through. 
I mean, for me, that was, that happened a little bit later on log than I wish. I wish it happened earlier for me, but that was a, a defining moment or an exciting moment for me was to start to grasp that identity as something that, uh, not only is a differentiator, but something that's a, a strength and makes me unique and brings me a different perspective to a co company or a business meeting uh, right. where I'm thinking about a problem very differently than my colleague who might be coming from a very different background. Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, but I'm, I'm wondering about, so, you know, you, so you're working in this program, you have the mandate for diversity set, you have a mandate yeah. for health equity. Uh, yeah. I assume also for funding, uh, you know, diversity and, and, and representation in who you're funding. Is that, is that the case? Well, um, Yes. So generally, the, I mean, as you know, the federal government has certain programs that are very targeted towards certain uh, demographics. Um, so it can be racially, financially. Um, sure. They're, they're supporting um, and targeting these ecosystems. But the accelerators that we work with, so the HHS will fund an accelerator a certain amount of money. And to some degree, the HHS is shaping what type of companies are going to be going through the cohort. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's a heavy focus of ensuring that you have a broad, diverse range of products and solutions that we're quote, quote, accelerating to market. Um, and so it's may not, it's not explicitly written in our contract or agreements with these accelerators, um, but it's a metric that we ask on an annual basis, you know, how many uh, underrepresented founders have we funded or uh, are we supporting what type of geographic regions are we located in? So if I were to show you our lo locations of our um, accelerators, you know, year one, we were all on the coast. So it's a big U. Everyone's mm -hmm. on, you know, Boston, San Francisco, San Diego, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, you know, since then we've evolved and now we're trying to represent the Midwest areas like uh, Minnesota, Missouri, mm -hmm. Indianapolis. Is um, that historically because so, you know, like most of like the innovation kind of hubs are the coasts. And so now yeah, you're focusing yeah. on like, let's do most like some, some of middle America as well. Well, yeah, I mean. You know, especially with biotech, I mean, you have certain hubs mm -hmm. and regions. So Boston and San Francisco are leading, leading hubs you'll hear about. Um, but there's innovation happening across the country. And in those areas, I was just on a call today um, with one of our accelerator partners based at Purdue University. And so they're in Indianapolis. Um, and the communities that they serve, while they were a very well-known school and, and, you know, have a, a very strong uh, research base in terms of they're receiving a lot of research dollars from the government, you know, they're serving a very remote population oftentimes. And so we were just talking to them about designing an accelerator program that isn't necessarily like the, the coasts where, you know, you have products and services that are being built for, you know, telehealth products. It's and it, I mean, it's a very simple example here, but there are places in Indianapolis that don't have connectivity to the internet. How do you reach those solutions? So the, the idea was to create these low uh, yeah, solutions in low resource settings, because if you can make it in those low resource settings, you can easily scale it up, uh, into a high resource, uh, area, like a San Francisco or Boston in again, a crisis environment, right? So we're, you gotta have the hat on of not looking at return on investment as your altruistic guideposts. Right. It's, it's about the mission as well. So yeah, so it's, it's, um, you know, there's no specific mandate, um, but the general mission is to support the you know, the United States at large. So that includes, uh, obviously folks in, uh, different regions and socioeconomic statuses. You work with a lot of accelerators. Are you starting to see diversity, equity, and inclusion and more intentionality about those, uh, those issues oh, in yeah. accelerators very broadly? Oh yeah. I mean, it's, you know, to some degree it's become trendy. 
I hate to say mm-hmm. it that way. And, you know, even the, the venture community, right? It's very sexy to say I'm very inclusive and we support X number of black founders or, you know, certain types of founders. So recently what we've noticed is that we're in year four of five of this like program for the accelerator program. And in year four, we, we just launched uh, a couple of accelerated cohorts are specifically around black founders. So it's mm-hmm. a cohort, a team of uh, biotech black founders, um, which historically have been underrepresented in STEM startups. In sure. Again, this is the, the, just that you just don't think of the, these, these things until you start to work with these founders mm-hmm. in terms of what their problems are. And, you know, we make some gross assumptions like, oh yeah, they probably want access to fund. Yeah. Any, any entrepreneur needs access to funding. Right. But so once we started the cohort, we started to realize like these founders actually have significant hurdles that, you know, I don't want to get into like races, but like, like, let's say if you're a, a white male, you're not necessarily faced with the same mm-hmm. type of Challenges, hurdles and specifically yeah. around, yeah, around fundraising. And even like if you're a, a woman, so the black women in the cohort faced substantial, or I would say not substantial, but just unique perspectives when they were fundraising throughout the cohort. So it's commonly what we, what we heard was, is that there's just a, a higher degrees of lens looking at or scrutiny on the technology validation of the, the team, you know, where that's a common question for any entrepreneur, it just gets a little bit more of a lens put on, mm-hmm. uh, is, is what some of the feedback that we got from the founders. The other thing that we also heard was that the mentors that we provided were coming from HHS, were coming from traditional venture sources, um, and by no fault of anyone, that's generally uh, a more, you know, that's generations of, Mm -hmm. um, you know, folks that have been groomed to be in, you know, fairly high level positions with, you know, your funding folks. And so that happens to be, you know, they're traditionally white males. And so these folks were saying, you know, as mentors, it would be great to have folks that look like me to understand Mm -hmm. if I'm making a product for, you know, the African American population, for them to understand the struggle of trying to build a, a diagnostic that can, you know, can like actually sense like through African-American pigmentation skin, skin cells, um, mm-hmm. or understanding the p- fundraising process for that demographic. And, you know, and that's, that could be applied to, you know, women, it could be applied to brown or Latin American folks mm-hmm. as well. So any type of minority, I think they, you know, it's important to have folks that, um, understand that background on the flip side. So whether that's a government, whether that's a some sort of VC or funder, it's, it's a systemic issue because how do you get folks into those positions? It takes, you know, you have to be qualified. You just can't just because, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm Latin American. I should be an investor investor, right? You have to be qualified. You have to have the experience. So it takes a lot of, you know, work to get those positions, but you know, hopefully it's getting better. It seems. Yeah. There's definitely improvement, especially on kind of that venture capital side is what we've seen. Um, and, and then. I guess from your perspective of kind of coaching or mentoring some of these founders and these accelerator programs, when you hear of these biases, like, so, you know, these underrepresented founders will come to you and give this feedback. What are some of the things that like you personally would consider implementing to kind of close that bias or how do you coach your founders and saying, you know, yeah. how do you recognize sort of that, that, yes, these biases exist and you're still continuing to be in front of investors or people um, trying to get grants? And um, like, how would you coach them? Because that 
that I think happens often. And I think that yeah. coaching advice is so critical. Yeah. And, you know, I, I just want to clarify one thing is, you know, I don't think that, you know, folks that are, let's say a traditional profile that they're in the venture community or as a government, you know, funder, I don't think they're intentionally right. thinking, oh, let me ask this black founder more questions, or let me ask this like Latin American founder more scrutiny on their business plan. I don't think that's the case. I just think that there's some implicit, let me right. just dig a little bit deeper, right? It's not like a, it's not like explicit, right? It's very underlying. Like, let me just ask one extra question. And that one extra question leads to a fumble. And all of a sudden the whole deal falls apart. Right? Oh, the pitch falls apart. So it's a, it's very like small nuances that, that complicate the, some of these issues. But um, yeah, so to your point, uh, your question for minorities, for different um, DEI groups, you know, access to, uh, again, mentors, but access to capital for the startup community is like, that is a huge problem because they typically don't have uh, a friends and family network that they can go and reach out to, to raise capital. Right. So I think providing capital, you know, whether that's from the government or the private sector to these early stage incubator and accelerator programs is one way to, you know, design programs that are supporting, let's say a black founder cohort, where, you know, we provide small chunks of money to these companies that go into the program that would essentially operate like their friends and family around and try to help them get up off their feet, get their idea off the ground and help them mobilize upwards in terms of their business, business idea. So, I mean, that would be like one way, a tangible way that at least that I've seen in some of the programs that we've designed to try to mobilize that community, you know, personally, in terms of mentoring and providing guidance to some of these entrepreneurs, you know, it's challenging because obviously I'm not, um, I haven't been through some of those similar, same challenges as, you know, let's say an African American female. Um, but I hear, you know, just by, by working with some of these entrepreneurs, some of the, the challenges and in my always, the feedback um, that I always give is, you know, if you're, if that's your experience with, you know, these type of, uh, let's say that fund or that program, you know, it's likely not a great fit for you long-term. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's opportunities now where funds are being stood up specifically around these DEI programs, whether it's like, you know, again, uh, race specific or, you know, otherwise. So, I mean, or like you, industry you know, specific or yeah, industry specific. Right. right. So there's a lot of, I mean, to your point, Nadia, there's a lot of progress that's been made. I'd say in the past, like just a few years, it seems like it's really taken off mm -hmm. uh, around this area. So, um, you know, hopefully you see that continue to grow where these founders have options where, you know, they do have, if God, you know, unfortunately if they do have a bad experience, there are other avenues for funding because, um, you know, I hate to say it, but at the end, you know, funding really is, is one of the core you know, drivers for these early stage entrepreneurs to, to succeed. Yeah. Uh, but I'm interested. You said that you hadn't necessarily thought about these issues, uh, that much until you got into your current role. And I just, and so now I'm just interested in, and obviously the field you're, you're in now is, is fascinating. And, and so what has been the thing that you, that really illuminated some of these issues to you in your current role? What's the most fascinating thing that you've, that, you know, that you've learned and that, something that surprised you? You know, from a DEI perspective? Yeah, from, and, and yeah. certainly in the, in, from a health equity perspective. Yeah. Before I, before this rule, I'd never worked with uh, the federal government. And I had this assumption, I guess, a little rosy picture of what the federal government is like. Mm -hmm. oh, so, oh, well, they're, you know, it's, it's <laughs> the federal government. They're going to take care of everyone yeah. because that's what the government does. But that is definitely not the case. That's not how, I mean, they're, you know, 
I think there's a mission, like that there's always a mission design where supposed to be helping, you know, the United States and all the citizens of the country, you know, make sure they're vaccinated. That's like, a, let's say that's the mission, you know, but the execution of that is very difficult. It's, mm -hmm. it is not as straightforward as I thought. I was like, well, if Amazon can figure out how to get a package out to, you know, rural near Nebraska, mm -hmm. why can, why, why would the government have an issue that, I mean, that was kind of the mindset coming into this role. Like, you know, it's not, not a problem. We'll get, you know, we'll solve it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's. <laughs> but that was probably the biggest eye-opener for me was that programs, even products and solutions that are being funded by the government, you know, um, they're often sometimes it's, 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 it's still a challenge to get them at scale delivered to folks that, that need it. So care delivery is still a huge problem in healthcare, but, you know, with something like a pandemic hits and the vaccine has to be distributed to every, every person in the country, I thought that was my eye-opener for me. It was like, oh, this is certain, this is definitely a problem that you know, if you made, we made assumptions that everyone can just work from home. I mean, yeah. the, the, I mean, well, folks can work from home and, and, right. you know, the assumptions are like, people don't have, we think yeah, everybody has internet access or has right. the ability or capacity to. Yeah. Sure. Right. And the like, you know, your children can just come home and work from a tablet. Well, you know, not everyone has a tablet. Right. So you know, things like that. And I think that's a combination of the world, but also the pandemic. I think a lot of people probably went through that experience. Of, oh yeah. That's, that's an, that's a gross assumption that I made because of my, you know, entitled life of, you know, having anything that I needed. Right. I you love know, that you had a rosy uh, impression of the federal government before this. And so it did. Yeah, so that gives me a window into your, you know, you're, you're a very positive person. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's, it, it's, there's a lot of good stuff yes. happening. A lot, I would say a lot of, a lot of, course, of great work yeah. being happened in the federal government. There's no question about that, but it's just, it's such a massive org yeah. trying to do, it's a very difficult job um, and they have to do it with a lot of, a lot of scrutiny. Uh, they have to do it in a very justifiable way. So I mean, there's a lot of checks and balances. So it's slow moving by design. Um, you know, you can't make unilateral executive decisions from like, you know, some senior leader that says, let's go fund my brother's company for $10 million. Right. So that's great. I mean, it's, it's good, but it's slow moving because of that. Right. It, that makes sense. I mean, what type of, um, if you were to give advice to uh, anyone starting out um, in like an entrepreneur starting out in the startup space, what type of advice would you give them as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion? Maybe in terms of like not even their products, because we've kind of captured that, but maybe yeah. do you have advice for um, a founder maybe as they are promoting or developing their product? as it relates to yeah. diversity, equity, inclusion. Yeah, I think I mean, in the, what I was saying was like, it's going to be a little bit generic, but it's, I think it really still lands for the entrepreneur, you know, that's going to be um, going or thinking about DEI is that, you know, the mentorship that you can get from folks that have been through or have not only built a company successfully and even unsuccessfully, um, or have gone through the entrepreneurship journey, but who have your background, who have gone through the experiences of trying to fundraise and gone up against those walls and hopefully been able to accomplish, you know, goals. I mean, that would be the best, you know, those are the, those are the people that you want to build, surround yourselves around and, and really try to just, you know, through osmosis, grab coffee, drinks, whatever it is that you do, and just meet with them and try to learn, you know, how they stumbled and fell, what they learned from different pro um, problems. Um, and then of course, you know, you, you don't want to, you know, steal too much of their time, but you want to be respectful that, 
they have a certain experience that they can probably lend you. And who knows, you know, you never know where you strike up partnerships and from that. But I think mentorship is, is, is critical to any founder, but certainly for a minority um, or someone with lack of resources, the mentorship can open up a tremendous amount of doors and um, insight into how to build a successful company. Yeah. I think that'll land very well. I think that's great advice. You know, I think the, some of the values of these incubators and accelerators is that network. And so if you don't have a network, it is a tremendous tool to just go to the events and you meet, you meet folks that are running Fortune 100 companies that are there just to, you know, grab drinks and meet entrepreneurs that maybe they'll, you know, hopefully partner with in the future. So there, there's a, a very diverse range of not just entrepreneurs, but successful uh, corporates that are there to, to network as well. So it's a really good network to jump into and be a part of. Um, and then, you know, you can hopefully work your way into those mentorship relationships, obviously not immediately on the happy hour, but um, certainly going in, 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 there's incubators and accelerators in every, pretty much every town and city that I can think of now. Um, so they're, they're accessible. There's a lot of virtual uh, incubators and accelerators that offer this programming. So if you have access to a computer, you can just, um, you know, attend these events that are free and they're, they're um, networking opportunities. And that's, that's a great way to get plugged in, ask some blocking and tackling questions of entrepreneurship, write some basics. It's, it's certainly a good opportunity. I honestly, I learn every single time I go to, to one of these events, I always learn something new, make a new connection. Um, and it certainly has helped me. That's great. That's great. Yeah. And I'm happy to be, uh, you know, a resource to some of these incubators and accelerators, uh, for anyone that's interested. Um, I obviously I work with a number of different types of incubators and different products and services. So. Yep. We can add that in the show notes as well. Cool. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Well, Abid Siddiqui, um, it has been a pleasure having you on. Thank you um, for joining us today Thank on you. Inclusive Collective. Welcome back to the Reflections of our episode. Rob, I, I absolutely loved having Abid on and him sharing with us not only his experience, but also just some of his observations um, as he's kind of supported these uh, government uh, funded accelerate, you know, startups, um, through the accelerator work. Uh, what were your, some of your takeaways? Yeah, it was a really interesting conversation. I really appreciate some of the things that, like you said, some of the observations that Abed had coming from that governmental perspective, right? So the one thing that I was, that was interesting to me, and I think it kind of uh, proved out something that we hear a lot, right? So the notion that underrepresented founders, uh, by either race or gender face more scrutiny as they're going through the process of trying to get funds. That really squares with a lot of what the data says uh, in the fact that, you know, there's a lot of these very prominent studies uh, that female founders outperform male founders. The most recent I just looked at was Not from a surprised. <laughs> but wait, so there's, okay. there's a lot of these studies, right? So like you can just Google them and just, and one right after the other. Uh, showing that that in some way, you know, the most recent one that I looked at was a Kaufman Fellows report. It said that female founded companies had performed 63% better than all male teams. I believe that that means that there's a female on the founding team. So it's not at all, it's not all female founding teams versus all male founding teams. <laughs> that might be <laughs> astronomically uh, outperforming that all male team. You know, again, that's an argument for diversification, diversification amongst the founding team, right? Sure, sure. 
And that women-led teams generated a 35% higher returns than all male teams. Ah, and so, so that's the, you know, there's, there's, like I said, there's a dozens of those reports with similar findings. And one might conclude, as you just did, that yeah. men should just, men should just pack it up, right? Like I didn't women, say that. Women, <laughs> but... women are better at running businesses, better at operating businesses. But that bias in the funding process that Abed yeah. talks about describes and really, you know, uh, it really just shows us why that probably isn't the right conclusion. So because so few women are funded, what we see is that only the best of the best actually get funded, actually get to start companies. Only the best sur survive that scrutiny, that extra level of scrutiny that is placed on them. And that implicit bias, that causes the investor, you know, that, you know, what he talked about, that investor just asks a few more questions or mm -hmm. just wants to learn a little bit more about the company and sometimes things fall apart. So sure. what we see in that performance data is that common notion among women and what minority communities tell us is that they have to always be twice as good mm -hmm. in order to achieve the same level of success. And, you know, what we see and what we're really seeing there in that, in that data is that less qualified, less skilled men with worse ideas <laughs> are getting funded and get mm. to start companies at a higher rate. At an, mm. and they're overrepresented in that in that that data set, right? And so, mm -hmm. and so, to me, I always like to say that equality is about the opportunity to fail at equal rates, right? <laughs> and so, mm. we know these stories of white male founders that brag about, uh, you know, and hold it as How a badge of honor right. that they failed several times before hitting it big, uh, and that there's all and and that companies are willing to or investors are willing to back them over and over again because they see that potential. Right. And then we hear all these stories about black women that have failed several times and venture capitalists just keep throwing money at them. No, wait, we never hear that story. No, right? I was that's, like, no, we don't. That, <laughs> right. No one's ever heard that story no. because it doesn't exist. It doesn't no, happen. No, it's so, like you have to be so polished that first time when you're in front of that VC that that's your one and only shot. That's the mentality that we keep hearing over and over again from right, our guests. Right, right. So they have to be spectacular. And so yeah. like, a lot of these founders have to be just so incredibly impressive and spectacular and their business plans have to be uh, really well polished and put together. And so there's just a higher hurdle for them, these folks. And therefore it makes sense that they would succeed at a higher rate once they actually get to that point. So, um, so and thanks so much. Highly Im and there's a highly embedded bias that VC VCs and investors may have where I would encourage those folks that might be listening right now to really start to look at their biases and become more aware of them. It's the same, same thing as we, we talked about in terms of, uh, or, 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 you know, we have talked about, and we'll talk about in terms of just questioning the process that you have in terms of uh, allocating investment funds, right? Mm -hmm. And just looking for where in the process is, there might be bias, right? Is there right. an extra level of scrutiny that some founders have to go through that others don't, right? And, right. and, and, and figuring out, uh, you know, how we can make that process more equitable. So, you know, again, so thanks so much, Salvin, for telling those stories and sharing that from his experience and what he learned in working with in that case, female and 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 uh, other minority uh, founders. Absolutely. Well, that's a wrap for this week. Um, I want to thank Abid Siddiqui and our listeners uh, for joining the Inclusive Collective this week. We always want to thank our listeners, right? Oh, thank you, listeners. Always. Yes. Um, the Inclusive Collective podcast is a production of Refillion Media. If you like what you hear, please be sure to like, rate, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts today. 
We also like to hear from you um, and get your feedback. So check us out at um, www.refilion.com. And you can find us on Instagram at um, Inclusive Collective Podcast, all one word. I'm Nadia Butt. And I'm Rob Hadley. We'll see you next week.